0: The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the book of the prophet Isaiah, in the fifth chapter and the twentieth verse, the twentieth verse in the fifth chapter of the book of the prophet Isaiah. Woe unto them that call evil good, and good evil, that put darkness for light, and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe unto them that call evil good, and good evil, that put darkness for light, and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet, and sweet for bitter. We are looking here at the fourth woe, which is pronounced by the prophet Isaiah in the name of God upon his own contemporaries some eight centuries before the birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Those who attend here regularly Sunday evenings will know that we've been looking at the whole message of this great chapter. And we've seen how in the first seven verses the prophet gives a kind of general statement of the truth of God to the nation of Israel at that time and to his contemporaries. He gives the complete picture In the first seven verses, in the form of a poem. And then, having done that, he comes down to specific charges. And these he puts in the form of six woes that he pronounces upon them. And as I say, we have considered the general statement in the first three woes. And here, in this 20th verse, we are looking together at the fourth woe which he pronounced upon the children of Israel at that particular point. Now, it is of the very essence of understanding this message, the whole of the chapter I mean, as well as this particular verse we're looking at tonight, it is of the essence of any true understanding of it that we should realize that it was a message for that particular period in which it was uttered. What I mean by that uh, is this. That the prophet was raised up by God to address his contemporaries, the nation of Israel, at a particularly serious time. This nation had been in existence for many years, at least some 1,200 years, created in Abraham. But here now, at this particular point, in the 8th century before Christ, things were beginning to go seriously, badly, dangerously wrong. And it's very important that we should bear that in mind. The message was for that particular period. The nation was face to face with calamity, with ruin. And here God raises a prophet to warn the nation that if she doesn't repent and return to God, that nothing faces her but calamity. Now, this, I say, is a very important principle. I'm calling your attention to the message of this chapter because, as I trust I'm able to show from Sunday to Sunday, we are living in an age and in a generation which corresponds alas to exactly to that which is described here as being true of Israel at that particular point. Now, there is a very great import and important historical principle involved just at this point. According to the teaching of the Bible, and this is something that you can confirm quite simply from an examination of ordinary secular history, history of the world, it is the truth to say that man, ever since he fell and disobeyed God, is always sinful. Man is always sinful at all times, in all places, in all ages, in all generations. But, and this is the principle, there are epochs and eras and times when man is unusually sinful, exceptionally sinful, or when, if you prefer it, his sinfulness is particularly evident and obvious. Now, you can't read the Bible, which is, of course, a book of history, as well as a book with great teaching. You can't read the Bible without noticing that there is an extraordinary kind of periodicity in this very matter to which I am referring. You will find ages when uh, the nation and the people in the nation were certainly not living perfect lives, but they were comparatively good. And then there are other periods when there was, and then there are these uh, periods which stand out When, as we saw in what we were looking at last uh, Sunday night, they sin, as it were, with cart ropes. Sin violently. And the whole position becomes desperate. In other words, sin seems to work up at times to some terrible, awful climax. And uh, that climax is invariably followed by calamity. Now, I'm making... uh, at this point, just a simple historical observation. You see this sort of graph in the history of mankind as you read your Old Testament and New Testament. And as I say, you can see the same thing exactly as you follow the subsequent history of the human race. Now, this is something, I say, that can be seen very clearly in the Bible itself. Take, for instance, the account which the Bible gives of the flood and the destruction of the world in the flood. And this is what it tells us. A man like Cain began to sin. And his progeny came and they sinned. And sin began to increase. But it reached a point in which it became so terrible, so awful, that God addressed the human race and said, My spirit shall not always strive with men. And he raised the men called Noah to warn them that if they did not repent, their world would be destroyed. Now there's one instance. The generation before the flood was one of those generations when mankind sinned with all its might and defied God with unusual arrogance. And it was followed by the calamity of the flood. You get another one in connection with the Tower of Babel. There again, the sin of men reached such a height of enormity that God, as it were, came down and confused their languages, destroyed the tower that they were trying to erect, and again produced this terrible condition of calamity. And, of course, here in what we are looking at in the book of the prophet Isaiah, we have another notable example of the same thing. Here was Israel. Sinning in the way that this man describes. Heading up, as it were, to a final orgy. And it was followed by calamity again. The Chaldeans arose, the Babylonians arose, and gathered an army together, and came and sacked the city of Jerusalem, and took the majority of the Jews away as captives and as slaves to the land of Babylon. This awful sinning, this terrible period of sinning, led again again to calamity. You get exactly the same thing In the time of our blessed Lord and Savior, the nation of Israel, the Jews, again, began to sin in this exceptional manner. In spite of the warning of John the Baptist, in spite of the warning of the Son of God himself, they wouldn't listen. In spite of the preaching of the apostles, they continued desperately in sin. And again, it led to exactly the same result in A.D. 70. The Roman army surrounded the city of Jerusalem, it conquered it and sacked it, raised it to the ground, and the Jews, as a nation, were thrown out amongst the other nations where they remain until this very night. Now, I'm simply putting before you this principle that is taught so clearly in the Bible, that whereas man is always sinful, there are times, there are periods when sin, as it were, overreaches itself. Sin goes mad, as it were. And men sins in such a desperate, awful manner that it heads up to one of these periods which is almost indescribable in its horror. And at such times, the Bible teaches us that God withdraws his restraining power and allows men, as it were, to fester in his iniquity and then visits it all with some terrible punishment in the form of some terrible calamity. He never does that without warning. He always raises his prophets, his messengers, to speak to the people, individually and collectively. Now, you can't read the Bible, I say, nor subsequent history without seeing that there is this extraordinary periodicity. And standing out in this, there are these times and epochs and eras when man seems to go completely mad and defying God in blasphemous arrogance. Sins with a cart rope, And it invariably leads to calamity. Now my friends, at such times, nothing is more prominent in the sinful behavior and conduct of the human race than the element which is dealt with in this verse that we're looking at together tonight. And that is Moral perversion. Moral perversion. Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil. That put darkness for light and light for darkness. That put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Perversion. Moral perversion. In all these periods in the history of mankind, when sin, as it were, loses its head and becomes man, this is invariably the most outstanding characteristic. And here it is put before us in this one verse. And it is, I say, alas, because this is the most prominent element in the life of this nation of ours at this present time that I'm calling your attention to it. Moral perversion. Calling evil good and good evil. Darkness light and light darkness. Sweet, bitter, bitter, sweet. Well, now then, in the light of all I've been telling you, which is demonstrated by history, is there anything under the sun that's more important for our consideration than this? What's a general election matter face to face with this? What does anything matter face to face with this? What does your greatest conference amongst your statesmen matter by the sight of side of this? If this is true, well then, my friends, we are in a desperate position. If the law of history is true, Unless we repent and return to God, there's only one end, calamity. Very well, let's look at this. What is the teaching given us in the scriptures with respect to this matter? Well, let me start by putting before you the characteristics of this condition. And especially, of course, in the modern form. The principle is always the same, But I want to put it particularly in its modern manifestation and expression. Now, I say there are degrees of sin. Sin is always sin. But there are degrees of sin. Sin can appear in different forms, in different guises. Sometimes men sin and are ashamed of it. They sin, all right, but they're ashamed of it. That's one condition of sin. But then there are other times, and we've already seen that in our previous uh, studies, when men uh, no longer sin and feel ashamed. They sin openly and unashamedly and are proud of it and even boast of it. That's different, isn't it? That's proving that there are degrees in sin. Sin and shame, sin and no shame. But uh, you get beyond that even. There are times when men don't seem to have any moral sense at all. And what I'm saying in general is true of individuals. We've known individuals who have sinned and are ashamed of it. I hope that's true of all of us. I mean the shame. But then we've known men who have sinned and have not been ashamed. Who have really busted about it. Ah, and we've known men and individuals, as there have been epochs and eras, when men seem to have lost their moral sense altogether. And they don't seem to know the difference between right and wrong. They're amoral, non-moral. They don't seem to have any moral sense left at all. But you know, that isn't the worst. There's something even worse than that. And that is the thing described in this verse. And that is this condition of perversion. And to be perverted is to be worse than to be amoral. To be non-moral is at any rate to recognize some sort of uh, category. But these have gone a stage worse than that. These have gone beyond amorality to a position in which they reverse morality and put evil for good and good for evil, darkness for light and light for darkness, bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Here is a condition in which mankind has overturned all the standards. It is a complete denial and reversal of what hitherto has been more or less universally accepted. Now then, this, I say, is something that can be seen in individuals, it can be seen in nations, groups of people, sometimes in the life of the whole world, as I've shown you from the scripture. That man turns turns everything right upside down and glories in the fact that he's doing so. That was the condition of the children of Israel when Isaiah addressed them in this prophecy. He says, that's one of the things you're guilty of. And it's because of this, unless you repent, you can expect nothing but disaster. I ask, isn't this something that is true today? Isn't this one of the most prominent characteristics of these immediate years in which you and I are living? Isn't the greatest and the most outstanding characteristic this whole element of perversion? This turning of standards upside down. The reversal? Of everything that has commonly been accepted and recognized. Now, uh, this can be illustrated in almost every realm. It's It's a most pervasive condition. You get it in art. Modern art. The cult of the ugly. Beauty despised. Form and line not really recognized. It's a day in which the ugly is elevated. It's not confined to art. It can be seen quite often in what's called fashion. It can even be seen, I suggest, in personal appearance. The cult of the ugly. The cult of the ordinary. A dislike of natural beauty. You get it not only in art, you get it in music. What's the popular music of today? Does it believe any longer in melody? In harmony? Does it pay much attention to form? Take it as singing. Very difficult at times, I find, to tell whether they're speaking or singing. This is perversion. Everything mixed up. There was a time when a man either spoke or else he sang. Now they seem to be doing both at the same time. Very well, look at it in the realm of architecture. Architecture. I'm prepared to grant a principle of utilitarianism. I can see the importance of having buildings that are of use and that are economical to run, and so on. But I would ask with all seriousness, is that the justification of modern architecture? Must it be hideous? Must that which is useful be monstrous? Is there no such thing as beauty left? Must every city be more or less the same as every other city, consisting of nothing but a series of boxes? Where's the old idea of line and a form of form of beauty? It seems to have gone. You see, it's something that's found everywhere. Look at your drama. I don't know much about it, but I read my newspapers. What's being elevated in drama today? Do people believe in romance any longer and in beauty? The term is kitchen sink drama. Look at poetry. We have to ask today, what is poetry? What's the difference between poetry and prose? It's almost impossible to tell. Is there line? Is there form? Is there meaning? No, no, it's sound that matters. It's words, sound, some vague general impression. No meaning of necessity. I gather you get it in the novel. It's the Freudian teaching that controls the modern novel. And most of the modern novels, as I gather from the Times Literary Supplement and other journals... Simply deal with perversions. This is the thing. This is the big thing. And you must never talk about any kind of romance. Your Walter Scots are no longer popular indeed. They are actually being despised and dismissed. Well, I say this is something that shows itself in all these lines, but it's much more serious, of course, when you come to the realm of morals. And the great word today is the new morality. This is the thing about which people are boasting. The new morality. This is something that has been taught quite openly. Just over a year ago, was it December 1962, I think, Professor Carstairs gave his famous wreath Lectures on the program on a Sunday night in which he quite openly and blatantly attacked traditional morality and propounded what is called a new morality, which more or less indeed it did advocate. Experiments in sex before marriage, Pre-marital and extramarital sex experience. I'm saying all these things in a chapel for two reasons. One, my dear friends, for you to know that the preacher doesn't live in a glass house. He lives in the modern world. And if these things are said on the wireless and the television, I've got to say them. Because there's only one answer to this kind of thing. The one I'm going to give you before I close this evening, God willing. We are here to face facts. Christianity doesn't pull down the blinds and, in its ignorance of the world, just work itself up into some ecstasy. No, no, it's the most realistic thing in the whole world. There is no more practical book in existence than this Bible, the Word of God. And not only Professor Carstairs, but the famous South Bank teaching and the notorious men at Cambridge who don't hesitate to write their books and articles and appear on the television and wireless with regard to these things introducing what they call a new morality, which tells us that what has been regarded as sinful is not sinful. Indeed, it's wrong to condemn it, because it is, as I'm going to show you, a form of self-expression. However, let me just give you the manifestations, the attack upon religion, the attack upon morality as a whole. It's being done blatantly before us, every single day. Indeed, it goes further. There are those who even attack the mind of men, That was really the essence of the whole position of Mr. D. H. Lawrence, the author of Lady Chatterley's Lover, that has become so notorious and popular. He said the whole trouble with the human race is that it thinks too much. Men's cerebrum has developed too much, and the secret of success and of happiness is to let your lower part govern you and control you, back to nature, if you like. It's an attack even, you see, upon the mind, and upon everything whereby a man can exercise discrimination and control. Indeed, to sum it up, it is ultimately a ridiculing of control, of discipline, and of decency. It's a plea that a man should do anything he wants to do. And any idea of control and of decency and of order is ridiculed and dismissed. Let me give you but one example. I happened to see a heading, and I read the criticism in one of our evening papers this last week of a play that has just uh, started running here in London. And this is what the critic said, the well-known critic. He says, a decade ago, on television, this type of wailing among the soap suds must have seemed daring and realistic. Now, its homilies about infidelity and the sanctity of the family have overtones of middle-class morality that appear both old-fashioned and prudish. See, that's what we've come to. Apparently this was a play which ten years ago would have been rather daring and somewhat shocking. But by today, any attempt even feebly at morality or to talk about the wrongfulness of infidelity and the sanctity of the family as a unit in society is something that is dismissed with great scorn as middle-class morality that appears both old-fashioned and prudish. I read these criticisms. In a sense, it's a waste of time. In another sense, it isn't a waste of time. I read these criticisms of the dramatic and the film critics. And this is what I've observed. If there is any element of decency in a film or in a play, it is derided and dismissed. It's laughed at. It's ridiculed. That alone is praised, which is perverted which brings in the abnormal and the ugly and more or less the foul. That seems to be the universal standard. If there's any element of romance, I say, or of beauty, it's at. old-fashioned, middle-class morality, prudish. Now, there, I think, is the position by which we are confronted, and you've noticed something further. Haven't you noticed a tendency today to be much more sympathetic towards criminals than towards the people who've suffered at the hands of criminals? Pity the poor criminal. They'll go round pet- petitioning. Oh, how sorry they are for him. You never hear them petitioning for the persons who suffered at the hands of the criminal? We are sorry for the poor criminal. And the poor criminal must never be handled too harshly. And the perverts in a like way and manner. We've almost reached the stage in which not to be a pervert is to be abnormal. The pervert is glorified. There is nothing so wonderful as the love of perverts. In other words, it can all be summed up in this phrase. To the modern generation, this is the slogan. Evil be thou my good. Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil. That put darkness for light and light for darkness. That put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. That's precisely what is happening in this country today. In cultured, learned circles. Amongst the intellectuals, those who claim that they are leaders of society. Isn't it an exact repetition of this very thing? Well, now, there is a description of it, but what is the case that they attempt to put up for it? I obviously can't deal with this adequately tonight, and I'm not going to give a series of sermons on it, much as I've been tempted to do, so I'm trying to give you a bird's-eye view of the whole situation. What is the case that's put up for it? Well, one of the great things that is said is this, that at any rate it isn't hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is regarded as the worst thing conceivable. And this is the answer to hypocrisy, perversion. Well, what do we say about this? No one wants to defend hypocrisy. Obviously, there's nothing finally to be said as a real defense of hypocrisy, but I think that that famous utterer of maxims, the famous French Count Rochefoucauld, said a great truth about hypocrisy. He said, hypocrisy is the homage paid by vice to virtue. And it's a very profound statement. Hypocrisy is the homage paid by vice to virtue. In other words, a hypocrite is a man who knows he's wrong. He's trying to hide it. He's trying to pretend he hasn't done it. He's any rate paying a tribute to morality. He's not a pervert. He recognizes morality. He's paying homage to it. I say that in defense of hypocrisy, there is some hope for the hypocrite, because he at any rate knows that he's wrong. He's a twister, he's a cad, but doesn't matter. He at any rate knows he's wrong, and he's never trying to pretend. We'll say that in favor of hypocrisy. The second element in the defense is this, or the case put for it, is that um, it is the right to question and to query the existence of any external, objective, universal moral standards. Now, hitherto, mankind in general has believed that, that there are certain, recognized, objective, universal moral standards. They've sometimes called it natural law which has been more or less recognized in all societies, whether people were Christian or whether they were not Christian. But you and I are living in an age in which that is being seriously questioned. And we are being told by some leading philosophers that there is no such thing as a universal external moral standard, that every man is his own standard. And that which is moral for me, which is right for me. What I think is right is moral. And if I do something that you think is wrong, it doesn't matter. I must act according to my own moral standard and insight. And there it is. There is no universal standard. So every man becomes a law unto himself. And every man does that which he wants to do and that which he believes is right for him to do. It is in terms of that that these things are being done. And then another very serious point is that they're queering this whole question of the natural or the normal. Did you notice what I read from 2 Timothy 3? Without natural affection, without natural affection. And in the same way, I could have read to you out of the first chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans, where the apostle in his great indictment of that age to which he belonged and other ages to which he is referring, he uses this kind of language. Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one to another, men with men working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet, and so on. And the same is true, he says, of the women. But the term is natural. Now today that's being queried, that's being questioned. We are saying we mustn't, we are being told that we mustn't use this term natural. They say, what do you mean by natural? What you mean by normal? Yeah, they say, what you really mean? It's natural for you. But if another man is different, it's not natural for him. So we are all different. And there's no such thing as natural. There is no difference ultimately between the sexes then. And so, the behavior of men is being justified by their querying of the natural difference between men and women. And woman for man and man for woman. It's all being queried. It may be natural, men and man, woman and woman. And so all your standards have gone because the category of the natural is no longer being recognized. And of course, on top of that, no such thing as sin because there's no God, no universal moral canons, no sin. Indeed, there's no crime. You'll find now increasingly in the courts, a plea is put forward of reduced responsibility, diminished responsibility. What's that mean? Well, a doctor has turned up and said, you know, this man's done this, that's all right, that's admitted, but I'm here to say that he couldn't help doing it. Because he's made as he is, because he's so constituted, because of the nature of his constitution, he can't help doing it. Diminished responsibility. So, not only no sin, no crime, and everything becomes a matter of medical treatment, and all your standards have gone and gone forever. And then positively, of course, It takes the form of a cult of self-expression. They say, you've got these powers within you. Surely we're meant to use them. These were not meant to be repressed and to be held back and restrained. Why did you ever have them? Why are they in you at all? Be a man, exert yourself, express yourself. Self-expression. There it is in its positive form. And then some of them try to put up love as against chastity. The trouble has been in the past, they said, chastity has been made the great thing instead of love. But love is the great thing, and chastity only comes afterwards. As long as there's love, it doesn't matter. If a man loves a man, it's all right. Don't you talk about your morality and your chastity. He loved that man, and woman, woman, and so on, and all the muddle and the promiscuity. If there's love in it, it's all right. And so everything is justified in terms of what they call love and which they put up as a sort of antithesis to chastity and to discipline and to order and decent behavior. Well, now, I this is my difficulty, you see, is to show the wrongness of all that in just a phrase or two. But our Lord puts it like this. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and all thy soul and all thy mind and all thy strength. That's the first and greatest commandment. The second is, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And if you look at it like that, you see, you won't justify everything you do because you say, oh, I love. You'll recognize that it may be lust. You won't harm the other person. You'll realize the other one is a person in the sight of God and that God is over your birth, and that you're not animals but that you are responsible beings before an almighty God and that he meant you to live a higher and a nobler life and that you must therefore discipline and control yourself and you express your love by considering your neighbor as well as yourself and not always yourself and your self-justification. Those are the arguments that are put up in favor of it, but let me put my third point like this. They're all specious. They're not the real explanation of modern conduct. What then is the the explanation? Well, the answer is quite simple. To any man who knows his Bible, the first thing he's going to say is this. There's nothing new about it. The new morality. My dear friend, it's as old as the period before the flood. It's as old as Sodom and Gomorrah. That's where you get your terms from. And yet, 20th century man bursting his great advance. New morality! It's as old as sin. The Bible knows all about it and can tell you more about it than most of these modern books. It's all here. It's all defined. It's all analyzed here. It's all described here. Not only that, and this to me is the most remarkable thing of all, The Bible actually prophesies that this sort of thing is going to happen, that this will recur. There's nothing extraordinary to a man who knows his Bible about the present position. I'm not a bit amazed that 20th century man with all his sophistication is behaving as he is. The Bible tells me that he's going to do it. Did you notice our Lord's own prophecy? In the last times, as they were in the days of Noah, even so shall they be. As they were in the days of Sodom, even so shall they be. It's all predicted, it's all prophesied. Whatever else you may be, if you're a follower of the so-called new morality, you're not doing anything new. Your morality is very old. Indeed, as one must put it, the new morality is nothing but the old immorality, trying to deck itself up in philosophical terms. No, no, there's nothing new about it. The Bible isn't surprised at all. But the Bible can tell you why it arises and why men do behave like this. And this is the important thing. Why are we being afflicted by this at the present time? Why is this horror facing us day by day? What's the cause of it? Well, here are the biblical answers. The main explanation is that sin can never satisfy. Never. Sin never satisfies. It pretends it's going to. Sin says only once, but you never stop at once. Sin never satisfies. And man therefore becomes tired of his particular sins and he wants more. And when he's exhausted the whole gamut, he invents them and he twists and perverts. It's a sign always of the failure of sin to satisfy. It's a kind of exhaustion. I once... He knew a very tragic case of a medical man who had become a drug addict. And though I remember asking that poor fellow who had been a fellow student of mine, I said, how did you ever come to do this? And he told me that it, his trouble was that he'd been a heavy drinker always, and that he'd reached a point when drink didn't seem to be able to affect him. And he must have some sensation. So drink having failed, he starts with drugs. There are thousands of poor drug addicts in this country tonight for that reason and that reason alone. It always presses you to something further. And when, as it were, the normal manner of sinning doesn't give you satisfaction, you must turn to the abnormal. It is just a manifestation of the failure of sin truly to satisfy. But let me hurry to a second reason, which is this. Have you ever noticed the contradictory and the unintelligent aspect of these perversions? What I mean is this. Here is men on the one hand... Bursting of his great advance. Bursting of his knowledge. Looking back and despising his forefathers of a hundred years ago and two hundred years ago. And of course, people of a thousand and two thousand years ago were well there unthinkable. The modern man, in all the height of his knowledge and learning and sophistication and advance and development, how wonderfully he's left everybody behind. Bursting of his mind. He's too intelligent to be a Christian, he says. And he's not a Christian because of his great brain. There he is on one side. But look at him on the other side. With D.H. Lawrence denouncing the brain. And saying that man's a fool that he thinks so much. That the way to be happy in this world is to stop thinking and let yourself go. Not only that. man bursting of his great development. Where's he going in music? Where's he going in art? He's going back to the jungle is going back to the drawings on the walls of the caves. My dear friends, these are sheer facts. Both can't be true at one and the same time. If your best music is the music of illiterate, uneducated savages, well, where's your sophistication? But that is to be sophisticated, to go back to the primitive, to the jungle, to the original, elemental. And you're doing it in your architecture and in every other respect. This is amazing. It's unintelligent. This is the contradictory element in sin always, that man is trying at one and the same time to boast that he goes beyond everybody and it only means going right back to the beginning. It's unintelligent. It's contradictory. But you know, there's something even deeper about all this. It is ultimately, I believe, looked at psychologically the result of an uneasy conscience. It's man trying to stifle his conscience. It's man trying to brazen it out. It's ultimately fear. It's ultimately unhappiness. It's ultimately dis-ease. Another that I would put to your consideration is this, and this to me is the most important of all. All that we are witnessing is ultimately to be traced to a, a failure to understand the true nature of man. The nature of life, the meaning of life, the end, and the purpose of life. Now, I'm not saying all this in criticism. I'm a preacher of the gospel. I'm interested in this because I desire men to be saved and delivered out of all this and to be given true happiness in Christ. But I'm saying it, therefore, in order to help. I believe that the main cause of this modern perversion is frustration. And aimlessness. I don't blame people in a sense. We are living in this appalling century when we've had two world wars and they're biling up these great bombs and young people are tempted to say, well, we may not be here long. Let's get the maximum out of it. Well, we are here. They say, what is life? What is meaning? What is man? Am I but cannon fodder? Am I but here to be blown up by a bomb? Well, I want to experiment. I want to find. I want to get something out of life while I'm here. It's frustration. It's aimlessness. Modern man is lost. He doesn't know himself. He doesn't know that he's a being made in the image of God. He doesn't know that he's got a great mind and brain, that he's unlike the animal. He's not a creature of lusts. He's meant to reflect something of the eternal God in himself. That's the cause of the trouble. Man doesn't know that. And so he behaves in this manner which is such an insult to himself. And then on top of that, all this... Is a lurid demonstration of what the Bible means when it talks about the power of sin. That sin is something which grips a man and masters him and turns him into a slave and can handle him as it will. The power of sin. That's why it takes God to save. Because sin is so powerful. And the devil and hell. The power of sin and the pollution of sin. What an evil thing sin is. You let sin work itself out, and you see where it leads you to. Not merely to sin and shame, sin and no shame, sin and no moral conceptions at all, then perversions like darkness, dark light, bitter, sweet, sweet, bitter, and all the foulness and all the consequences that follow. It's illustrative of that. And at the same time it illustrates that the real trouble with men is in his heart. Our Lord said it all. This, he said, is the condemnation that light is come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. My dear friend, if you're a follower of the new morality, it isn't because of your head, it's because of your heart. I've shown you that you have the head, you wouldn't be contradicting yourself as you do if you had one. It's your heart, you like it, it's lust. It's an evil heart. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. That's the real explanation of it all. Let me ask another question. What is the end to which all this invariably leads? I've already told you. It leads to the flood. It leads to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. It leads to the conquest of Jerusalem, the sacking of the city, and the children of God being slaves in Babylon. It leads to A.D. 70. It always has. And take it outside secular history. What was the cause of the decline and fall of the great Roman Empire? There's only one answer. It's this very thing. It is because Rome became rotten in her heart. It is because a canker entered there and they became immoral and perverts worse, amoral. And all the foulness, Rome went wrong centrally and the Goths and the Vandals came down and conquered her. It was the cause of the decline and fall of the great empire of Rome, as it has been the cause of the decline and the fall of most other empires since. Authorities writing on this say ancient societies lost their drive and their power as their morals relaxed. And it's always the same. Once men lose their moral understanding of themselves and of life, all their drive politically, militarily, and in every other respect goes, they'll prefer to be long lolling in the bars and committing their fornication and adultery and letting their empires go to ruin. It's always been the main cause of the downfall of all the greatest empires the world has ever seen. And did you know that this was a fact? Communist Russia, a few years ago, denounced marriage and advocated free love. And encouraged free love. As atheists, they didn't believe in marriage. They believed in what is called free love. And they openly recommended it and advocated it. Did you know that they've had to reverse their policy? And that at the present time, they are commending marriage once more. Now, they've done the same thing in China, and I prophesy to you here tonight that they will soon put an end to this communal notion of men and women and restore marriage in China also. Why? Well, because they discovered in Russia that free love and the abolition of the family as the unit of society led to nothing but chaos. This is just a solemn fact of history. I'm not saying this. This is history. They've reversed their policy because the policy of free love led to nothing but chaos. It always has. It always will. But I'm not standing in this pulpit because I'm concerned about the future of the British Empire. There is something infinitely more serious and tragic. I remind you again of the solemn words of the Son of God. You read that portion in Luke 17 again. As it was in the days of Noah, even so it shall be. Before the final judgment, he says, comes, that's how they'll be living. They'll be marrying and giving in marriage, eating and drinking, buying and selling. They did it before the flood. They did it before sun. They'll do it before the end. This is what makes the thing so alarmingly serious. That though modern man doesn't believe in God and doesn't believe in moral standards and believes in nothing except in himself and his own lusts, he doesn't affect the situation at all. And God is still in his heavens. And God is still all powerful. And God is still the judge eternal. And God is still going to bring history to an end. And we'll end it with a judgment and the destruction of all evil and wrong everlastingly. The final judgment. And the casting of all evil and sin and the devil and all who belong to him to the lake of perdition without him. In the last day, says Paul, perilous times shall come for men shall be lovers of their own selves. Here they are, here it is today. Covetous. Boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents. You'll see it every day in the paper. You see, the New Testament is right up to date. Unthankful, unholy, without natural affection. Truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent. They can't control themselves. They say, I can't help it. I can't control myself. I'm an animal. Incontinent. Despisers of those that are good laughing at morality. Yes, there it was again, this middle class morality. So prudish. So neat and tidy they spit upon it, they laugh at it. For a man to be faithful to his wife, for a man to believe in the family, for a man to restrain himself. Middle class morality. Prudish prudence. Laughable. Behind the times, outmoded, fancy still, believing in that? There it is. Yes, they're despisers of those that are good. Traitors, heady, swollen up, high-minded lovers of pleasures. More than lovers of God. My dear friends, these are the things that always presage calamity and disaster and suffering and woe. And in the name of the Son of God, I would ask you to consider these things in the light of his pronouncement and in the light of what God has invariably done in the history of the past. Very well, there's the biblical diagnosis. Is there any hope for such people? Have I a message for this world tonight? Have I anything to say to these new moralists These who gloat and glory in perversion and who ridicule morality and standards and godliness and God. Thank God. I have a glorious gospel for them. There have been people like this in the world before as I've been reminding you. The Apostle Paul writes a letter to the church at Corinth and he says something like this to them. He says, be not deceived, God is not mocked. And then he says, certain people shall never have an inheritance in the kingdom of God. Who are they? Well, he gives a terrible list of them. Neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor effeminate, nor drunkards, nor revilers, none of these people shall ever enter into the kingdom of God. There outside, nothing unclean can enter into the kingdom of God for God is light and in him is no darkness at all. There's no impurity in heaven. All around God is gloriously pure. It's clean, it's healthy, it's lovely, it's true. And men and women in that condition can have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. But, says the apostle, it's all right. Such where some of you, but ye have been washed, ye have been sanctified, ye have been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the power of our God. Our Lord says, This is the condemnation that men, that the light has come, but men love darkness rather than light. The trouble, I say, is in man's heart. Can anything be done for him? Well, man can't do it himself. You can't change your heart. Nobody can. Can the leopard change his skin or the the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? He can't. You can't give yourself a clean heart. You can't renew your nature. You can't. But I'm here to tell you this, that God can. And it is in that very chapter where our Lord says that that is the condemnation That he said to Nicodemus, Verily, verily, I say unto you, ye must be born again. What man needs is a new heart, a new nature. A nature that will love the light and hate the darkness, instead of loving the darkness and hating the light of God. He wants to enjoy that which is sweet and not the bitter. He wants to love the good and to hate the evil. And isn't that the problem with all of us? It's our natures that are wrong. It's because we are wrong inside, out of the heart. The fullness of the heart, the mouth speaketh. A man is led by his heart and is led into sin. The whole trouble is in the heart. Out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murderies, fornications and all foulness. It's in us. It isn't outside. It's in. And I need a new heart. I need a new outlook, a new desire. How can I get it? Well, I can never produce it, but I can cry out with David in Psalm 51, Create within me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. When did he cry like that? He cried like that after he'd committed adultery and then murder on top of it. He says, I'm foul, I'm unclean. Thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and it's there I'm rotten. Lord, create in with me a clean heart. And renew a right spirit within me. Make me something that I'm not. Wash me with hyssop and I shall be clean and I shall be whiter than the snow. And thank God this is still the same message tonight. I don't despair of modern men with his so-called new morality and his perversions. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to every one that believeth. And the Apostle Paul preached it in the seaport of Corinth, down in the dregs and the vileness of all your striptease hovels and all the riot of evil. He preached it. And it was the power of God in the lives of men and women. Ye are washed, ye are sanctified, ye are justified. In the name of our Lord Jesus and by the power of our God. And thank God it's true tonight. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. The message to this generation is this. Continue as you are. You end in disaster. The judgment of God and everlasting perdition. But listen to the message. Realize the truth about yourself. Repent. Believe that God so loved you that He sent His only Son into the world, and not only that, but to the cross on Calvary's Hill to bear the punishment of your sins and to take away your guilt. Believe that. And you'll not only be forgiven, you will be given a new life, you'll be given a new nature. You'll hate these foul perversions. You'll hate sin. You'll hate evil. You'll desire God and good and purity and holiness and sanctity and the glory of him. And you will be given power to enable you to live a life of holiness. And my dear friend, it's not only a holy life, it's a very happy life. There's no bad taste in your mouth. There's no shame. There's no suffering to others. It's a happy life. It's a life of joy and of peace as well as of purity and of holiness. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. It's not only a gospel of forgiveness. It's a gospel of renewal. It can change a man's heart. Give him a new nature. Make him a new man. Make him a child of God with the prospect of seeing God and spending eternity in his glorious presence. Amen.